to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. My guest today is Paul Gilmartin. Paul's a comedian who's best known for his role on the TBS show Dinner and a Movie. He's appeared everywhere from VH1 and Comedy Central to HBO and MTV. Paul is also the host of a popular podcast called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. He talks openly about his lengthy battle with alcohol and depression. Today, he shares some great strategies for dealing with depression, addressing your mental health, and facing uncomfortable emotions. I think you'll appreciate his raw honesty and realistic strategies as much as I did. Make sure to stick around until the end for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I break down my guest's mental strength strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Paul Gilmartin. He's mentally strong, and this is his story. Paul Gilmartin, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I am excited to talk to you. As I was telling you before we hit the record button, uh, I'm a fan of your show. I I don't remember how I discovered it, but somewhere along the line, I stumbled across your podcast and started listening to it at the gym. And I'm a therapist, so a lot of the work I do is about telling people sort of actionable steps and strategies so that when they're struggling with the mental health issues that they can say, all right, I'm going to go home and I'm going to practice this. One of the things that really stuck out to me about your podcast is... Although you give actionable advice, a lot of your shows are just more about support and helping people know that they're not alone. And the letters that you read from your listeners are heart-wrenching sometimes. Yet at the same time, sometimes they're almost kind of funny because it's true. Right. Yeah. uh, One of the reasons I started the podcast was I felt like there was a lack of emotional support. There's a lot of stuff out there about do this, do that. But when I was at the depths of my depression and untreated alcoholism, I thought there's no hope. Nobody understands. It's over. It's never going to get better. And I was really suicidal. And I realized that humor and comfort were something that once I found them, were as important as actionable steps. And so I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I can I can be that hand uh, holding somebody while uh, holding their hand when they're in the waiting room to see the psychiatrist. I, I did not want to uh, say I'm the solution, uh, I, but I wanted to say, hey, I'm one of you and I'm still here. So and you even named it the Mental Illness Happy Hour yeah. as a way to say, let's all come together and hang yeah. out as we talk about our struggles. Yeah, I wanted the name to be something where you could tell that there was a sense of humor in it, but also know what the podcast was about. And and thanks to meditating, I was meditating one day and the idea occurred to me. And the I think also when I was meditating, the the logo came to me of a station wagon with the pill bottle instead of luggage on the on the roof. And it definitely the logo alone stands out once you see it. There's so many other yeah. podcast logos out there, but there's yeah. something about that one that just has always stuck with me as well. So good work with yeah. that. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, kudos to you for being on the front lines of, of 
the battle for a more mentally healthy world. Uh, my hat goes off to those of you that are doing the nine to five grind. And I'm always amazed when I meet a therapist who in their off time will take in even more information about mental health. I don't know how you guys do it. You must have such a deep passion for helping people and curiosity about mental struggles. Well, most of my time these days is spent writing and speaking about mental strength and a lot less time in the therapy office, but I'm so fascinated by people. And I'm fascinated by the fact that we don't talk about so many of these things that we all struggle with, and then we pretend as if they don't exist. And that's one of the things that drew me to your podcast is a lot of the things that you and your guests and the listeners talk about are things that all of us can relate to. Yet, I think for a lot of us, it's never been something that we discuss with our friends or our family members. For instance, I've heard you read letters about people saying like, my biggest strength is my ability to point out my own weaknesses. Right. <laughs> Which is Things not, like a, that. not a strength, not a right? strength, you know. But something that a lot of people who are struggling can relate to. Right. I mean, there, there's obviously, you know, there's a difference between being aware of your flaws and having the thing you're most proud of is your ability to, you know, flagellate yourself. And you're a comedian. You had this really popular show on TBS for a really long time. You're still on Comedy Central sometimes. And I'm super curious to know what you think. I know a lot of people who are comedians who struggle with depression. Do you feel like those two things sometimes go hand in hand? Oh, absolutely. I, I've never met somebody who's really funny that didn't have a childhood that was lacking something uh, emotional, you know, or where there was trauma present or stuff like that. For for most people that are professional comedians, we didn't decide, you know, one day that comedy would be fun. We we used humor to cope. We We became comedians because we had to, because there was nothing that really dominated our minds as much. It was it was like breathing for, for us because we've been doing it our whole lives. Kind of like, you know, the person who has been singing their whole life, um, c- coming from a musical family or whatever, and it's just second nature to them. So it's, um, yeah, I do believe that comedy chooses you rather than you choosing comedy, at least for the people whose who's comedy I admire. And then when it came to comedy, were you funny because that cheered you up or were you trying to make other people feel happy? I think trying to, a couple of things, I think trying to make other people happy, but more than anything to relieve the tension. Uh, Things were very tense between my mom and dad. I don't think my dad was even aware of it. My dad was a really, really checked out guy. He was a high functioning alcoholic. Um, But my mom would complain to me about him and my mom was somebody who did not have a filter and would let you know everything she thought about everything and everybody. And it kind of fell to me in my mind to be the the person for her to lean on. My dad was so checked out, you know, he, um, he was just not, he was just not there to be a, a partner for her. So humor would be one of my ways of trying to get her to to lighten up and, and she was a good audience you know she would she would laugh and so you know couple that with the fact that I was small for my age and I wore glasses uh 
And the people I was attracted to, you know, growing up in grade school, the people whose friendships uh, I, I valued were, were the kids that were funny. They were just more fun to be around. So uh, I guess all of the above. And then, so it worked for you as a kid? It did. I think it probably saved my life as a, as a kid um, because there would be a release when I would get a group of people to laugh. Uh, it was their, their way of saying, I see you and I approve of you. Gotcha. And then how did you go on to start making a career out of it to be on TV and to start doing comedy in a way that helped you earn money? Uh, I had been fascinated by stand-up comedy as long as I could remember. Uh, I remember listening to George Carlin albums when I was seven or eight years old, and we had to listen to them in secret because there were swear words on it. But it opened my mind to this whole world where you could question authority and you could make fun of people in power and you could be, you know, quote unquote, dirty. Um, that it was really about what's the elemental truth underneath it. Because kids sense when there's falseness and dishonesty in their world. And, and there, there is so much of it in the adult world. And for a kid to tap into that, it's really powerful uh, I think not only emotionally, but intellectually, because then you begin to look at the world differently. And so I think, you know, that coupled with all the other things that I have shared made it kind of a philosophical pursuit of just always looking at the at the world and wondering why things are the way they are and finding fault with things. I think when you grow up in a household where there's a lot of negativity, um, you decide to have negativity be a kind of a tool for you. I mean, isn't that what essentially comedy is, is saying, hey, look at what's wrong with this. Isn't this full of shit? And comedy is a way of doing that. I didn't, even though I dreamed of doing stand-up comedy, I was afraid to really go at it uh, as a profession. I had changed my major from pre-med to theater in, in college. And that was because I fell in love with an acting class and I thought, Oh, you know, I'll try to be an actor. Well, that's really hard to make your living, uh, as an actor. It's hard to make your living as a, a standup as well. But, um, it, the writing on the wall was you are going to have a day job the rest of your life. This is, you know, maybe two years out of college. And I was afraid to go up on stage. You know, I tried it once in college, there was a local standup comedy competition and, you know, I didn't bomb, but I didn't, I didn't do well. Um, and I just thought, man, I just got to get up and do it. And my mom, you know, who as complicated uh, and negative, as negative as our relationship could be, uh, one of the testaments to how complex people could be is my mom has always been my greatest supporter of me doing something creative. And she would say, just get up and do it just get up and do it. And she would say, you know, I was listening to somebody talk on the radio and they said that if you keep uh, index cards around, you can start writing your material when a thought occurs to you. And so I did start doing that. And eventually I started doing open mics and it happened to be when the big boom was happening in stand-up comedy. And I was able to quit my day job after about a year of doing open mics. And and then I was on my way after doing it for about seven years. Um, my then girlfriend and I made the move to Los Angeles because we had kind of done all you could do in Chicago. 
and we wanted to get involved in television or anything really outside of just working nightclubs the rest of our lives. And I just went out on an audition for, for dinner and a movie and, uh, and got it. And it's funny because I had not gotten anything to that point. I'm not a good, uh, auditioner. And fortunately they allowed us to improvise in the audition. And uh, I think I've always been pretty good at improvising and because your personality comes through when you're, when you're improvising and most of television is so terrible because it's written not in the voice of the person who's going to be delivering it. And, uh, and they cast me and I was shocked. And, but, but what was interesting was I had had such little success at auditions. I had, I almost didn't go to the callback because I thought I'm never going to get anything I'm no good at this. I am just going to be, I guess, a writer for the rest of my life. So I didn't care when I went into the audition. And I know so many people who, once they stopped being desperate to get something, it came their way. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, you're, then, uh, you relax and you're yourself. And then your show was popular. You did really well. It was on for a long time, right? Yeah, it was on for 16 years. And uh I'm really grateful that I, I got to do it and I worked with a lot of great people and have a lot of great memories from it. Um, yeah, by the time it went off the air, I was I was definitely ready creatively to be done with it. It was not the show that it had been when we started. Um, there was almost no um, product endorsement on it when we started and we had a lot of time to kind of stretch out and do our thing and be quirky. But the more money it started bringing in, the more ad sales there were and the less and less time they gave for, to us to be creative. And it kind of snipped the bolts off of the, of the show. But, uh, financially it, I was, I was grateful for it. And I met some great people you know, doing it. And and it's cool today when somebody comes up to me and they're like, I grew, I was a kid, you know, you were my Friday nights. And I'm like, that's great. I'm a hundred years old. Thank you. <laughs> and the whole time you were doing it, were you battling depression then? Yes. Yes. It, it, they would yell cut and my face would drop like there were weights attached to it. Um, it was probably the, the note that I got the most from the director and producer was, um, smile more, smile more. Um, it, I, in many ways, dreaded doing the show because there was a lot of pressure being that it was improvised and we would kind of come up with it on the fly. We'd, we, you know, we'd have a kind of a loose sketch of what we might make fun of. You know, we knew what the food was. That was the only thing that was set in stone. But um, there was that, that pressure, um, probably most of it, self-imposed. Uh, I thought I cared way too much about what my peers thought of the show. And, and I think most of them were fine with it. It was certainly not a show that anybody was like, oh, you know, that piece of shit. Um, so, but, you know, when you're an untreated alcoholic who's depressed and has a negative voice in your head and you're... <laughs> your most vulnerable thing, your creativity is going to be judged five days later by a million people, you know, that, that can fuck with your head and give you some anxiety. And as you know, as a therapist, anxiety and depression are like, you know, the, 
the Skipper and Gilligan. Uh, you usually usually find them together. I, I couldn't find an older reference than that. Uh, so that's the best I can come up with. Uh, so it was difficult. Um, I would I wouldn't be able to look for the most part at anything that I had shot. Uh, if I did, I had to get drunk to watch it. Really? So I can only imagine the pressure of being depressed, yet you're supposed to be funny. Yeah. And knowing you have to show up and make it up on the spot, which we know depression and anxiety affect the way you think. And then especially if you're battling with alcohol all at the same time to think, how do you make your brain function in a way that this is going to make it work? And then what was it like when you would get positive feedback from people, even though you were depressed and you knew that somewhere you must have known that the show was doing okay because they kept it going. But on the other hand... When you're battling depression, sometimes it's hard to hear positive comments. Boy, is that an understatement. It would depend on who it was coming from. Um, uh, a lot of times I would just say, well, boy, you know, they have a low standard or they're just saying it to be nice. Um, but, you know, sometimes, you know, for instance, one of the guests that we got early on was a guy named uh, Phil Hendry, who's a brilliant uh, radio broadcaster. And he also does a podcast now as well. But he's somebody whose who's comedy I held in, you know, it, it was just on a pedestal to me. And when he came on and, do the sh- and did the show, uh, that to me was uh, something that I just meant, uh, meant a lot to me. And having fellow comedians who I respected come on the show meant a lot to me. Uh, the, the people at TBS probably that are in charge now probably have no idea the guests that are in the archive uh, from the show that we did because we did it for 16 years. There were We had Maya Rudolph on before she was on Saturday Night Live. We had Bob Odenkirk on um, you know, before he, he did uh, Breaking Bad. We, we had so many, so many people uh, early in their careers. There's a a uh, treasure trove of fun, silly things. But, you know, getting back to your thing about how could you be funny, my anger for uh, for most of my life was the thing that drove my comedy. And I heard somebody say one time that comedy is a socially accept- acceptable way of expressing anger. And for me, that was definitely true. And so in a way it was always there to run the comedy, but oftentimes the director would have to say, cut, that was a little mean, you know, what you said, or, you know, you look angry. So it was, it was a, it was a struggle. And, and the other thing is the environment being on a set with 40 people milling around, it's kind of like the office where, you know, you're walking by somebody for the fifth time that day down a hallway and it's just the two of you and you got to think of something to say or you got to smile or whatever. And that always just felt like, you know, carrying a hundred pounds to me because I didn't want to feel phony. But I also, I, I just could not wait for the day to be over so I could go to my hotel room and uh, and sleep. And I would just oftentimes walk in the door, jump in bed and sleep until the last moment I could before I had to get up and do it the next day. And did you know you were depressed then? I did. I did. Um, And I think I knew I had a drinking problem, but I wasn't ready to look at it. And I I didn't get sober until about halfway through that 16 year run. And, and that changed a lot of things for me. It, it, um, changed my perspective on 
myself, um, the fortune that had come my way, not financial, but, you know, the good fortune of, of having a job that supported me, enabled me to buy a house and, um, get off the, being on the road constantly as a stand up. Um, so I began to appreciate things more. I began to lighten up a little bit. Uh, I began to see, um, my flaws, uh, a little more clearly. So yeah, it, it helped. It definitely What helped. made you decide to address your drinking? I was tired of thinking about suicide and a psychiatrist that was treating me said, uh, until you quit drinking, I refuse to see you as a patient because you're wasting your money and you're wasting my time. And I'm so grateful that he did that. It might've saved my life. Wow. And so you quit altogether right then and there? Uh, no, I I drank for probably another three months. And then one morning I woke up, uh, it was July 21st, 2003. And I thought the same three thoughts I would think every morning, which would be you slept too late, you're a lazy piece of shit, your life is passing you by, and my stomach would tighten into a knot. And for some reason that day, I just said out loud, God help me, I can't do this anymore. And something changed, you know, I, I guess in that moment I surrendered and the atoms in the universe realigned around me and, uh, found this path for me to, to go get help. And I was ready. I was teachable in that moment because I had been beaten, you know, into a state of teachability uh, by my depression. And what happened to your mental health when you quit drinking? Oh my God, it soared. Um, you know, there's this period of time when people are newly sober and they're really engaging in the process of the meetings and doing the, the work on themselves and being of service. Uh, they call it the pink cloud. And I definitely experienced that pink cloud where I just felt like everything was going to be okay. And I, I don't know, just this, this feeling that the universe was on my side and that the struggle had been me being my own worst enemy. But now that I had kind of aligned my energy with the energy of love and compassion and all the other traits that we are taught to exemplify as children, as I began to move away from selfishness and um, coldness and being controlling, uh, my mood began to lighten. Also, it gave my meds a chance to work. <laughs> you know, the psychiatrist yeah. said to me, I can't deal with your depression when you're pouring a depressant down your throat every night. Yeah, I think that's true. A lot of people think, well, I drink because it helps me, but at the same time, they don't realize that it's counterintuitive when you're taking antidepressants. It's not going to help. Yeah, yeah. You get that euphoria for a couple of hours, but you pay. You're making a withdrawal from the uh, serotonin bank in your in your brain. Uh, that's the the vicious cycle of addiction. Is uh, it's it's so it's so hard to break out of, especially when you're feeling hopeless and isolated and self obsessed. Which is untreated, as you know, untreated alcoholism is more than just the desire to drink. You know. It's the the pimple on the skin is the drinking. The real issue is the self-loathing, the selfishness, the self-obsession, 
the you know, hypersensitivity to criticism, the emotional immaturity. Um, so th- those things I had to begin to deal with, but I had this, I don't know, this abundance of hope and energy. And the person that was mentoring me in my support group meetings was just really on fire for the process and his sobriety. He'd been sober for about a year. And I just, I hung on to his coattails and because I wanted to feel like he felt, you know, when he stuck his hand out to me at my first meeting, you know, tears running down my face. And, and he said, how can I help you? My name's, my name's Bill. And he gave me his number and I wanted to have those clear eyes and that smile like, like he had. I wanted smiling to not be an effort. And I discovered, wow, I am not cursed to struggle to smile the rest of my life. I just have to do these things that he's suggesting to stay in a mental and spiritual place where smiling is possible. There are days I still struggle to smile. You know, my depression has certainly not disappeared, but it's way better than it used to be. Did you have any fear that if your depression started to get better, that you wouldn't be funny anymore? Very briefly, but um, I, I don't know why I didn't believe that. I think there was something in me that just thought, that's bullshit. Or the fact that anger was never really completely taken away from me. I always knew that I could access anger if I needed to. But the thing that I found was the palette of emotions I could express through creativity was greatly widened by getting sober. Is now I could express vulnerability, which I'd never been able to express before. You know, I could be more self-deprecating, which I had never been able to do before. I took myself so seriously. I was so intense. Um, it was, I guess I was in survival mode. You know, nobody, nobody waves a checkered flag, you know, between childhood and adulthood and says, you know, it's over, you've escaped. You, you have to decide that that race is over, that you, that you are not still in danger. I'm glad you said all that. I've talked to a lot of people over the years who are afraid if they get their mental health treated, if they improve it, that somehow they won't be creative anymore. Oh, such and- and so they'll hang on to their depression or they'll say, if I, if I get rid of my anxiety, I won't be able to do these certain things. Clearly, that was not your experience. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, it gave me the confidence to take creative risks. Um, I'd been sober a year and I just, on a whim, I pictured doing this right-wing satirical political character. Um, this is before... Stephen Colbert was doing the Colbert Report, and and I just went to an open mic one night because I I felt like I think this could be a good vehicle to launch my views about what I don't like about where our politics are are heading because I'd been doing it in monology as a stand up comedian like a lot of other comics and it just I sounded like everybody else and I thought well what if I become that guy dressed like him talk like him because I went to college with these guys, you know, I golfed with these guys. I, I, I know how they dress, how they talk, how they think. And I would have never had the confidence to do something that outside the box for me 
outside the box. And it went over great. And within, I don't know, four months of doing that, I was invited to um, do it at the HBO Comedy Festival in Aspen and be a part of their show that, you know, was considered the highlights of the of the festival. And again, I just felt like there was something in the universe that I had stopped trying to fight. And the universe was just bringing this stuff my way. And not that there weren't struggles, you know, uh, about two thirds of the way through the run of the show, they cut my paycheck by 66%. And I had to really lean on the tools I had learned to cope with my feelings in therapy and in my support groups and to, you know, essentially the serenity prayer, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Couldn't change what they were offering me, but what I could change was my attitude about it. And it took me about a year to not be seething with resentment and being constantly aware that I was making a third of what I had been making previously. But I was also able to see how entitled I had been. Um, and I think I, I took some stuff from it. I, I, I believe that the universe had a reason for that to happen for me. I probably wouldn't have thought about doing a podcast uh, if I didn't realize that that part of my career might not last forever, uh, that I probably wouldn't be able to retire anymore from from doing the show. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of a lot of things, um, a lot of gifts the universe gives us in really ugly wrapping paper. I've heard you say several things in terms of what's helped your depression. So you quit drinking, you started taking medication, you go to therapy, you have support groups that you go to. Anything else that's been helpful over the years? Praying and meditating. And when I say praying, you know, it's for me, it's not, oh, there's a dude in the sky and I say thee and thou and all that stuff. For me, it's just me getting on my knees and reminding myself of how small a cog I am in this gigantic universe and that I need help, that I need to align myself with whatever forces are out there that are making the universe expand. And I talk to it as if it is an entity that, that has ears, but intellectually, I believe that it's all atoms and chemistry. And so that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, trying to be helpful to people who are in a place where I used to be asking for help when I'm in a place that somebody has been before. Um, yeah, I think those are, those are the, the big ones. Learning how to play um, as opposed to trying to get to a place of oblivion to ignore my life. Um, you know, as you know, with addicts and alcoholics, there's a lot of black and white thinking. We don't do five. We do zero or 10. And learning how to do five um, is something I still struggle with. But um, yeah, there, I, I think those are, those are the, the big ones. Um, vulnerability was a huge one. And that one, I don't think really, really 
became a tool for me until the second support group I started going to, which was around intimacy struggles. Um, it's just, you know, if I could put it bluntly, uh, my dick was not connected to my heart. And it was something that I knew very early on in life. And as I thought I was just, that was just the way I, bo- I was born. And it wasn't until I was in that support group and th- memories and feelings began coming up that I had suppressed in childhood, you know, that I began to open up about them and find out that I, I was, I was damaged in a lot of ways and I was angry and I was sad and that I needed to, to cry those tears and to process those things. And as difficult as it was to share those things with other people, because as you know, a lot of victims of, of sexual abuse put the blame on themselves and they take on the shame. And it was hard for me to let go of that shame. And it's, it's such a mindful uh, processing sexual trauma, especially when it happened in childhood and especially when it was a, a, a caregiver, uh, even if it, if it was under the radar and covert and not overt like a lot of people think it is. Um, but talking about that, crying on people's shoulders, um, risking somebody judging me by sharing my story. It's, it, I think if you ask somebody who has survived sexual trauma, they will tell you that one of the greatest fears is that somebody will not believe them or will say you're making too big of a deal. It is terrifying. And to this day, when I share my story, I still fear people telling me I'm making too big of a deal of it because that was the voice in my head for my first three years of processing it. And it still comes up. So then what was it like to start a podcast where you don't just tell your story once? In every episode, you get into some nitty gritty stuff about the way you think, the way you feel, things that are really tough to talk about. What's that like? Well, for a narcissist, it's not that tough because we love to talk about ourselves. Um, it, it there is, I think there will always be a part of me that wants to be seen and validated. Um, I think for a lot of my life, I felt like the authentic me was invisible. I didn't even know what the authentic me was, but I knew that there was something inside me that felt like I. I have not been seen. Um, I, I don't know how to put it into words, but almost in the way that I approached comedy, that's how I felt starting the podcast. Like I have so many things that I want to share. Some have to do with me. Some have to do with people I know or situations I've seen or advice I have. Uh, it was a struggle to shut up actually, when I first started doing the podcast. Um, I steamrolled a lot of guests and thankfully the listeners were kind enough to gently uh, make me aware of that. And it's something I still struggle with and having a bit of ADHD makes it really difficult for me to hold on to my question until they're done talking because I, after five seconds, forget what it, what it was. And I also get so excited when I'm talking about something that I have a lot of opinions and, and thoughts uh, about. So, um, but the, the pot, it just, 
again, it felt like the universe was just saying, here, here's where we want you right now. There was not even a question in my mind that this was the next phase of my life. I didn't know if I would be able to support myself doing it. Uh, I was married at the time. And the first couple of years of it, I was not able to support myself. I relied on, on my, my wife bringing money in. Um, and a listener had to kind of slap me about the face uh, metaphorically and say, you need to start asking for money. And here's what, if you can't think of what to say, here's what you should say. And, and she wrote it out for me. And I, and I did. And that started getting me donations. And then some sponsorships came along. And again, I feel like the universe just opened a door and said, okay, you know, we're ready for you. How many years has it been now since you've started your podcast? Uh, we just fi finished our 10th year. We're, so we're in the beginning of the 11th season. What are, if you had to pick a couple of the biggest lessons you've learned about mental health since starting the podcast, what would you say? That most of us are experiencing the same emotions. What's triggering them may vary. You know, one billionaire may be nervous, uh, you know, while uh, somebody who's living on the streets might be nervous about something else, but they're both experiencing nerves and the tools are often very similar for what it is that's going to help them to talk to somebody, to take care of themselves, to prioritize what's important in your life, to get in touch with what your fears are. You know, are they realistic? Are they unrealistic? What's your hab habitual patterns of thinking? You know, it, Examining the voice in your head that talks to you every day. Is it, is it cruel? Um, would you talk to a friend that way? Well, then stop talking to yourself that way. Uh, most of us feel like we're not doing life right, that we haven't gotten to where we think we're supposed to. Um, and what would you say about that? Yeah, as a therapist, I have the luxury of having people come in my office all day long have very similar stories and yet they think they're completely alone in what they're experiencing, like the emotions and the thoughts that they have. And if only they knew that so many other people are experiencing the exact same thing, like you say, people from all different walks of life and completely different circumstances, yet the emotions are often very similar, but we don't talk that much about feelings. So people feel like they're completely alone in it. Yeah. And, and one of the things, once I realized that, um, the listener pool was a great resource of potential guests. Uh, I thought it would be really great to have a famous person on one week and somebody off the street the next week so they can see how similar the internal struggles are because the cult of celebrity and wealth is so corrosive to people's mental health in this country. and. I had experienced the um, getting what you want and realizing that it will never be enough. Um, I shared this many times, but I used to think that if I could get my face on a billboard on Sunset Boulevard, that I would have officially made it. Uh, and one year the show took a billboard out on Sunset Boulevard and I went and looked at it and I lost respect for Sunset Boulevard. 
You know, it's like the Groucho Marx joke. I don't want to belong to a country club that would have someone like me as a member. And it's a bottomless pit. And I, and I, even though I wasn't sober yet, I, I realized, oh my God, there's something in me that will never be satisfied. And when I got sober, I realized, oh, this was the missing piece, caring about other people. Not when it's convenient, when it's inconvenient to pick, pick up the phone when that person that you don't feel like talking to is calling, but they need, they need somebody. Uh, and, and to be able to distinguish between that and trying to being everything to everybody and, you know, running my battery down and then doing everything resentfully and feeling right. like I'm a terrible person and it's up to me to save everybody. You know, I, it's, it's why I'm so grateful that there are therapists like you in the world because you can help us nav- navigate the area of gray where life happens. You know, it's not your Mother Teresa or your Hitler you know, you're somewhere in between. Well, what does that look like? Right. It's hard to see that sometimes in ourselves. One last question for you. For somebody who's listening, who maybe feels alone, they feel like they're really struggling right now. What would you say to them? First of all, you're not alone. Uh, The second is that the one constant in the universe is that things change. Uh, The brain is uh, neuroplastic. And it can be rewired. Even the worst trauma can be rerouted in the brain from the area where you feel your heart pounding and you feel like you're going to die and doom is right around the corner to a place where it just feels like a, a gentle breeze and you're able to intellectually go, and my life isn't threatened right now. Um, this is just my body uh, acting up and I'm going to take a deep breath, maybe call a friend on the phone. Um, things, things change, but it requires us very often to get outside our comfort zone. The very thing that scares you might be the very thing that saves your life. Um, sitting in your recliner, obsessing about yourself is not going to make your life better. Thank you for that, Paul. Thank you for being on the show. I know your words of wisdom and your story will help a lot of people. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Welcome to The Therapist Take. Here's my take on some of Paul's mental strength building strategies and how you might apply them to your life. Number one, get support. When Paul's psychiatrist refused to treat him with depression medication as long as he was still drinking, Paul could have given up. He could have insisted he wasn't going to stop drinking until his depression got treated. But he didn't. He went to a support group where he met other people who were struggling with similar issues and ones who were further along in their road to recovery. Meeting sober people gave him hope that he could do it too. He continues to talk about attending support groups and how important that is to his progress. He also launched his podcast so he could help other people who feel alone in their struggles. He wanted to share his experiences and the experiences of other people so his listeners would know that they're not alone. The other people are often dealing with similar emotional experiences. Support from other people is often overlooked as an essential tool to building mental strength. Some people think you have to be strong enough to do everything on your own. But getting support from other people is actually a sign of strength. It shows you're strong enough to want to get better, open enough to want to learn from others, and humble enough to admit you don't have all the answers. Number two, be willing to be vulnerable. 
Paul said a lot of things changed for him once he was willing to be vulnerable. When he stopped pretending things were great and he was willing to open up about his struggles, he formed genuine connections with other people. He said his relationships also improved when he stopped drinking. He was able to enjoy reciprocal friendships, which again required vulnerability. Well, your goal might not be to share your struggles with the whole world like Paul does on his podcast. It's important to be vulnerable with some people in your life. Whether you tell a family member when you're struggling or you call a mental health professional for assistance, being vulnerable is the key to developing deeper, more authentic connections with others, which is an essential component to being your best self. Number three, change your all or nothing thinking. Paul talked about how he often experiences all or nothing thinking. He gave an example of how this plays out when he wants to help people. He either assumes he's incapable of helping anyone or he assumes he has to save everyone, depending on the day. He now realizes, though, that things aren't all or nothing. For example, he can help some people when he wants, but he can also say no and still be a good person. We all do this sometimes. We think that our job is either great or horrible, or we think that new person we met is either amazing or annoying. The truth is, though, your job probably has some positive aspects and some not-so-positive aspects. And that person you just met probably has some great qualities and a few qualities you don't appreciate so much. Assuming things are either completely one way or another only sets you up for disappointment. Pay attention to the times when you experience all-or-nothing thinking. Whenever you use words like always or never, look for exceptions to the rule. For example, if you think something like, good things never happen to me, pause for a minute and think about a time when something good did happen. Maybe you got a raise once, or maybe your friend gave you a gift. Reminding yourself of those exceptions can help you see that things aren't as black and white as your brain is imagining. Seeing things from a slightly different perspective can help you feel better. So those are three of Paul's strategies that I highly recommend. Get support, be vulnerable, and change your all-or-nothing thinking. To hear more of Paul's tips, check out the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast. He has some great guests, and he shares letters from his readers that you won't want to miss. You talk about all things related to mental health in a way that normalizes the things that so many of us experience. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.